Well, this is the day that the Lord has made. So we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Oh, come on. Amen? Amen. 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 Hey, welcome to second service. Welcome to the last time we'll meet at 11 a.m. I also want to remind you, 10.30 a.m. next week, we're giving you a half an hour back for the rest of your day. You just got to get up a little bit earlier. Sorry. Apparently you're not very happy about that. So I'm wondering, I'm going to show you a picture. I wonder if you have ever seen something like this, okay? You know what those are? Anybody have one of those in your house? Or maybe your mother-in-law's house? So we know what this means, right? Uh, uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen these before, haven't you? Okay. Uh, so my five-second Google history search on this, I, I, I'm guessing, don't hold me to this, but apparently they're, they're from Japan, originated around the 1700s or something like that. But either way, either way, we all know that they're very much pot, a part of pop culture. These, these hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil monkeys. But here's the thing. I, I think Christians have adopted these as like our symbol of holiness. Like this is what it means to be holy in this world, that we see no evil, that we, uh, that we see no evil, that we hear no evil, that we speak no evil. And while, yes, we are to avoid the evil of this world, what I'm afraid is that we think our notion of holiness means that we are going to stick our heads in the sand like a bunch of ostriches and try to avoid the world. And here's the reality. Like, Christ does not call us to avoid the world. We are meant to be involved in the world. But we're not supposed to be influenced by it. And that, and there lies the tension, I think, for a lot of us Christians. We want to be involved in the world, but we have our guard so low, we are just constantly influenced by it. And here's the thing, for those who follow Christ, we are to be involved, as our passage says, if you've been with us for any length of time, if you've been with us at Peace Church for the last few weeks, you know that we've been in the book of James. So if you're not there right now, and you've been with us for a few weeks, you have no excuse. You know where we're at, James chapter 1. Make sure you're there. Head there now, James chapter 1. The Bible says that we are to be involved in this world, but not influenced by it. Or as we're going to read in our passage today, we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. If, if you are just joining us, we've been in this series called Pure Religion. And in this series, we've been highlighting the fact that as Christians, when we talk about religion, a pure religion, we're not talking about following old traditions. For us who follow Christ, our pure religion is a right relationship that we get to have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this writer, James, has been telling us. And by the way, James is the physical brother of Jesus, or we should say the half-brother of Jesus. So James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 is where we've been zeroing in on. Let me read it for you as we get to work today. So James writes, and he says this, he says, If anyone thinks he's religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if you've been with us, you know, a couple weeks ago, we looked at verse 26. Last week, we looked at the first part of verse 27. 
We looked at this part that said, religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this. And then we really zeroed in on this part, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But today we're going to move this underline one line down. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Short little phrase, but very powerful and challenging command for us in this world. So let's pray, and then we'll get to work. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, in this day, with 24-hour, unlimited, unfiltered access to everything, it is so hard to see no evil and hear no evil. It's hard to stay unstained from this world. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts this morning as we see how you want us to live out this verse in this world. So Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds that we might receive your truth and not just receive it, Lord, but you'd transform us by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said very loudly, amen. 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 So to try and break this verse down for us here in West Michigan, here's what I'm going to do with our our sermon and our time today, just so you know where we're going. We're going to look at recognizing this stain that James is talking about. We're going to talk about remaining unstained and then how do we remove it? How do we remove it? All right, so first, recognizing the stain. I don't know anyone who, when confronted with the question of this, is the world, is the world the way that it should be? No one's going to say yes. We all know something is off. We all know something's broken. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. I don't care what religion you are. We all know something is off. We all know that the world is not as it should be. And the Bible calls this sin. See, sin, yes, is a personal thing. It's a condition of our hearts. It's a crime of our actions. But sin is more extensive than that. When the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about the fact that it has affected everything. When Adam and Eve first sinned, it didn't just affect them. Yes, it did. But sin affected the very ground, literally the dirt that they were walking on felt the effects of sin. It is a worldwide brokenness. Sin, sin is a virus that affects not just one program, but it corrupts the entire computer. But let me ask, let me ask this. If we recognize that something is off in the world, if we know that something's wrong in the world, my question for you is can you identify that in your own life? It's one thing to point out there and say, yes, out there, not as it should be. Out there, broken. Out there, hurting. Out there, it's not the way it should be. But can you look in the mirror and do the same thing? Can you recognize the stain? See, this call of James to remain unstained is is an interesting call. But I think when we look at the book of Romans, Paul says the exact same thing, maybe with a little bit more clarity. Let's see what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Actually, we all know, hopefully you know by now, that uh, Paul actually wrote in Greek, in in an old version of Greek. And in the original language here, when he wrote the word world, it wasn't the common, typical word for world. That word would have been the word cosmos. We typically see that and we translate that as world, but that's not what Paul uses here. Paul uses the word ion, which means an age. 
not like a person's age, but like a generation, like an era, like the way that things are. The way that things are right now in this world, the world's age. So to remain unstained and to not be conformed means, and Christians write this down, you are not meant to fit in. Christians, you are meant to stand out. See, if we take a step back and if we look at our lives and we cannot identify how we are different from the world, then you have conformed to the world. If you can't step back and identify how your lives are different than the world's, then you've been stained by the world. And I'm not just talking about this conceptual worldview, I have a different worldview. I'm talking about the way that you live, how you live this out. Is there something qualitatively different about what you do with your life versus your neighbor down the street who's not a Christian? Christian, where is God in your lives? How does he affect the way that you handle your finances? Where is prayer when you are making a decision about what to commit to or what you're allowing your children to make commitments to? How are you treating your neighbors? Hopefully better than how they are treating you. Do you keep enough money so that you can stay comfortable? Or are you slightly uncomfortable with how much money you feel God's calling you to give away? We're meant to be generous. Christians, do you recognize the stain of the world in your own lives, in your homes? Or have you now realizing you have conformed to this world? So let's talk about remaining unstained. If we can recognize the stain, how do we remain unstained? Let's talk about two things here. Let's talk about identifying the world's influence. And then we're going to talk about following the Spirit's guidance. So identify the influence. Let's talk about that for a few moments. How does the world influence us? I think that one of the most prominent ways that the world influence us, influences us is actually pretty obvious. So let me, let me, let's do a little thought experiment here. Imagine that you're talking with a couple. And this, this couple is, a, is a, their parents. And they say to you, yeah, you know, weird thing. We got home the other day. And we walked into our living room, and there's a guy sitting there with our kids. And he's talking to our kids, and he's showing them pictures, and he's talking about politics, and he's talking about what's right and wrong in this world. And you're thinking, what? And you say, well, what'd you do? And they say, well, yeah, no, of course, yeah, we kicked him out. Like, uh, okay, well, what'd you say to your kids? And we're like, and they're like, uh, Nothing. The guy left. And you're thinking, this is insane. Right? And then they say, and then they say to you, and you know, not only that, but get this. We put the kids to bed at night, and then we go to check on the kids, and that guy is in their bedroom at night talking to them again. And you're thinking, this sounds like an absolute nightmare. And they say, yeah, this guy, he's, he's showing them pictures again. We don't even know what pictures he's showing them. And you know what else? He was telling them that we're bad parents. At some point, you're thinking, am I living on a different planet? Like, you, you're starting to wonder if these people should even be parents at this point, right? Now, I'm going to say something right now that I guarantee is going to get me in some hot water. This is happening more often than what we want to acknowledge. 
And not only is it happening, but we're paying for it to happen. This is that guy. Cell phone. This is that guy who has so much influence over our lives. So much influence over our children's lives. That guy is the cell phone. See, this is not just a way to stay connected. That's, that's the way that we try to sanctify why we have a phone, right? We say that it's a way to stay connected. But here's the reality. It is an unlimited, and for so many people, an unfiltered 24-7 access to every influence that is out there. But we let this guy come over and speak to our kids whenever he wants because, well, because it's the popular thing to do. Right? A couple years ago, I was, uh, I was the uh, camp speaker for a middle school camp. Uh, I was speaking there for a week, and uh, this is 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Okay, this is a few years back. 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th graders, and I don't know, there's probably 150 middle school kids there, something like that. And I was talking, giving the evening talk one night, and I said to them, I was really curious, because my daughter was about approaching uh, you know, teenage years at this point. And I was just really curious, and I said, I said to this group, I said, uh, okay, how many of you, how many of you have your own smartphone? And honestly, probably about 70% of them raised their hands. I said, okay, okay, put your hands down, put your hands down. I said, how many of you, your parents put some sort of filter on your phone? Almost all the exact same hands raised. Thinking, okay, okay, that's good. Now, I really wanted an honest answer to this next question. So I tried to like, you know, butter them up a little bit, you know, try to like put them at ease. So I said, okay, put your hands down, put your hands down. I was like, okay, okay, how many of you are smart enough to get around that filter without your parents knowing? And they kind of start giggling and all the hands start to raise and then they're like, <gasps> they realize they're just about to, you know, like confess. And while that resounded or that, that, that kind of like left us off with, with some laughter, I was terrified. That terrified me. It scared the tar out of me. Here's the thing, like parents, that thing's not a babysitter. Like, yeah, that's a, it's a great layer to add to your parental responsibility to be the primary influence over your child's life, but that thing is not a babysitter. That is just one thing. It does not negate your responsibility as a parent to be so intentional with how your child's using that thing. The access of influence is enormous. Here's the terrible problem that we find ourselves in. If you're a parent like me, you did not grow up with those things. I, I, did, not, I, I did not grow up with this thing. I mean, I was 18 years old before I got a pager, if you remember what those things are. <laughs> we have no idea what we are giving to our kids when we give them one of those. Because we did not grow up with it. We don't know what it's like to be a teenager or a middle school kid with this sort of access. This is unprecedented. 53% of kids have a smartphone by age 11. Within one year, by age 12, that number jumps to 69%. 84% of teenagers have them. And this may be hard to believe, but 20%, that's one in five, 20% of eight-year-olds have their own smartphone. If you think those are phenomenal, this is, this is the, statistic, the, the statistic that really got to me. Since 2015... The number of kids who have a cell phone has doubled. 
One middle school principal from Texas said this. He said, we used, to, we used to be with a no cell phones period policy, but we've tried to lighten that up a bit. We realize that it's part of the culture now. Yeah, on the one hand, absolutely. Yep, it's, this is the way of the world now. This is, this is part of the culture now. This is our day and age. This is our ion. But on the other hand, we have a call to keep yourself unstained from the world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. If you think keeping oneself unstained in this world can happen with the excuse of it's just part of the culture now, you've already fallen prey. Yeah, it was a principle who said that, but how many Christians and how many Christian parents use that exact excuse It's just part of the culture now. I tell you what, take that excuse before the throne of God and see what God says. Sorry, God. I mean, like, it's just part of the culture now. I mean, all my kids' friends have it. You know that sort of pressure, right, God? We are not meant to fit in. We are not meant to fit in. We're going to stand out. Yes, yes, I'm picking on cell phones right now. I I get it. Low-hanging fruit. But here's the reality. They are 24-7 unlimited access to any and every influence out there. No child in the history of the world has had what this generation now has. Parents, if you didn't grow up with it, you don't know what it's like to be a teenager with this sort of access. We just don't know. It is different now. For generations, generations could say to their kids, I remember how it was. It was tough being a kid. You don't know what it's like now. The pressure this puts on kids, we have never experienced. And I'm afraid that we're not respecting this fact. Parents, do you understand the power of influence that is accessible to your kids through their smartphone? If you don't know what social media accounts your kids have, if you don't know their search history, if you don't know who they're talking to, then you cannot identify the influence that your kids are being exposed to. And far too many parents are far too casual about this. And this is not just a problem for kids. We know this goes for adults as well. The influence that is accessible to us is going to stain us. It's like asking a toddler to walk around with a glass full of wine, expecting them they're not going to spill it. You're going to have stains all over your house. This influence will lead us to being stained and that is being, being influenced, and we are being influenced to follow the ways of the world through our phones, which are opposed to God. And yeah, what are we going to say to God about this? It was just part of the culture. When James is, what James is calling us to here is so unbelievably radical, it's almost hard to comprehend. Parents, how are you defending your children from and filtering the influences of the world. Would you, as parents, let just anyone be alone with your kids? Of course not. But yet with our phones, we let anyone be alone with them. Kids and teenagers, listen to me for a moment. If, if the cell phone policy in your home changes because of what I'm saying here today, You can be mad at me. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. 
But I'm here to tell you, kids, uh, it'll be okay. In fact, it'll be better, and I'm willing to bet one day you'll thank me. And before you all get ahead of me, I am definitely not building a case for us all to become Amish, okay? I've got a cell phone. I use it. The technology is phenomenal. It does provide opportunities like we've never had before. There is, there is something here. But I will say about the Amish, uh, there's something to be admired there. Moral of the story, so much of the world's stain comes to us because we do not understand the influence of the world or the ways that we open the door to the world's influence. And uh, I think I can say this. Uh, when we return to our uh, regular scheduled programming, in the fall, when we return to our adult classes in the evening, we call those faith formation. This fall, we're planning on doing a seminar open to anyone called Teens and Technology because things are different now even from five years ago. And so we want to be able to equip parents with a Christian worldview. If you do choose to give your kid a smartphone, uh, what are some best practices when it comes to that? Look for that this coming fall. But parents, can you identify the influences that are pouring into your home? Identify the influence and follow the Spirit's guiding. In this call to be unstained from the world, there are no qualifiers or exceptions given, and certainly not because of culture. Christian, seek the counsel of others. Talk to those who have gone, gone before you. Trust the truth of God's word. Trust and rely on and lean into the strength of the Holy Spirit to do what's right for you and for your family apart from what the world is doing. When, uh, when Jesus Christ was preparing for his crucifixion and preparing to return to heaven, he was talking with his disciples and he was preparing them for the time when he would no longer be with them. And I love what he says to them. He said, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But then here's the thing. Jesus knows we cannot do this on our own. Right? Jesus knows that we need the Holy Spirit to fill and fuel and guide our lives, giving us the strength to keep his commands. And so I love what Jesus says after this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And then he immediately says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Holy Spirit, who is called our helper. He is the one who will lead and guide our lives, giving us wisdom, giving us strength. But I love what Jesus Christ says about the Holy Spirit. He says, and he, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But here's the reality. We're not walking with the Spirit. We're not leaning into the strength of the Spirit because, let's be honest, recently, I think for many of us, we've been too concerned with who's going to be leading us from the White House over and above who's going to be leading us from our heart. Or is it just me? I'll be honest, at some point I forgot God's in control. I, the past few weeks, there's a point where I got to very, I got to a like, point where I, it, was, it was a very unholy concern. Right? Like, I need to be concerned. Like, we should be concerned. We're supposed to be involved in this world. But I, I, at some point, I forgot, wait a minute, God's got this in the palm of his hand. Like, I think we've forgotten these things. We fail to see the ungodly influence of this world because we're so concerned with this world that we've forgotten what Jesus has taught us. We've forgotten what he said to us. We've forgotten the beautiful picture of life that he's painted for us. The love that he's shown us. 
the wisdom that he imparts to us, the call on our lives, we've forgotten the sacrifice that he's made so that we could have all of that. And this sacrifice that Jesus has made, in which the Holy Spirit will remind us of and lead us into, if we are willing to be led, this sacrifice removes the stain. So let's talk about removing the stain. And to do that, I want to talk about two things. See the stain and then see the scars. First, we need to see the stain of sin. Here's the thing. We know we're not perfect people. Or is it just me? Like, we know we're not perfect people. But people don't think of themselves as being stained. And we don't think of ourselves as being stained because we compare ourselves to other stained people and we just don't see it. But that is the wrong comparison. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, this is a monumental call from our Savior. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? Be perfect as God is perfect. Jesus doesn't say, be just like everyone else. For Jesus, God is the standard, not the world around us. And I've given this talk before. I've said this exact same thing before, and I know exactly what's happening in some people's hearts right now. You're thinking to yourself, exactly right. Other people can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Okay, listen to me. Like, if, if you realize that, like, if you realize only God can judge you, you're not concerned about other people judging you. If you realize that only God can judge you, that should make you very, very concerned. What does that, what, the, what would that be like to compare ourselves and to think about God judging us? To compare ourselves to God and think about him judging us. What would that be like if we compared our sin-stained lives to God's holy perfection? I don't know what sort of imagination you got, but try to imagine this for a moment. That you are standing before the throne of God and you're comparing his holy perfection with your sin-stained life. If you can't imagine that, let me describe to you what that's like. Because that actually happened for a man. His name was Isaiah. Isaiah was brought literally into the heavenly throne room of God where there were colors that the human eye can't see. There's flashes of lightning. There's creatures that are literally beyond us, heavenly creatures. And God himself is sitting on the throne and Isaiah, a mortal man, is brought into that presence. I want to read you about Isaiah's reaction to that. And for good measure, let's read the King James Version. Then I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was not excited to be there because he might meet some dead relatives. Isaiah freaked out. Isaiah saw the holiness of God, and what is the very first thing he recognizes? His own sin. Isaiah sees God and he realizes this is beyond him. It was too much for him. The first thing that he says is, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I am a sinful and stained man and I come from people who are sinful and stained just like me. Isaiah sees God and he immediately sees the stain of his own life. And we need to see ours too. We have to recognize this. But here's the reality. You can't remove your stain. You can't remove your sin just by looking at it. 
But when we see it for what it truly is, you want to know what happens? We will know what we're looking at then when we see the scars. Not your scars. The scars of Jesus Christ. The scars that Jesus has on his body are the scars from his torture and from his crucifixion, which he did in our place. See, Jesus had nine-inch Roman nails driven through his hands and through his feet. And when he had died on the cross, to make sure that he was dead, a Roman soldier took his spear and pierced Jesus' side, opening up the side of his stomach. And those are the wounds that Jesus had. We need to see that our stain caused those scars. See, our sin, our stain leaves us guilty. We're guilty of breaking God's good and loving commands on our lives. And that is why the world is broken. The world is broken because we're not following God's standards. We think we can do it on our own. We think we have a better way. And this is why the world is broken. We break God's commands. But instead of being brought to justice, instead of us going to face our penalty, Jesus takes that punishment for us on the cross. With his crucifixion and with his death, he pays our penalty. But in taking our penalty, he gives us his life. He gives us his place in heaven, that we are now welcomed as sons and daughters at the table of God through Jesus. And James, our writer here, who we've been reading from, James is, again, he's the brother of Jesus, but he's a Jewish man. And his book has a very Jewish bent to it. See, when James talks about this word unstained, the word there is also could mean um, blemished. It's a clear, and it's a very clear throwback to the Old Testament of an unblemished, unstained, perfect lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of Israel. Except no little lamb could pay forever for the sins of Israel. That's why they had to keep making these sacrifices of these perfect Lambs. They looked for a lamb that was worthy, a lamb that was without spot, without blemish, was unstained, and those lambs were the ones sacrificed for the sins of Israel. But this points to the New Testament lamb that is worthy, Jesus Christ. He is the final, perfect, unblemished, unstained lamb that was sacrificed not just for the sins of Israel, but once and for all, for all the sins for everyone who would come to him through faith. And now the call is for us to remain unstained like Jesus was because his sacrifice removes our stains. But here's the thing that I think we often miss about this. I think for some of you, you're saying, amen, I believe that. But I think if you're like me, you missed, you missed some things about this. There's something I want to share with you. See, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his body was a resurrected body, perfect could no longer die, was no longer susceptible to, to, sin, to, uh, to getting sick. It was a renewed and perfect body. It was the body that he would ascend to heaven with. But here's the thing that fascinates me about this. And it's really highlighted in the story of one of his disciples named Thomas. Many of you know his nickname is Doubting Thomas. Let me read to you what happened to Thomas. This comes from uh, John chapter 20. It says, now Thomas was, was one of the disciples he was not with the other disciples when Jesus came to him after his resurrection. So the other disciples told Thomas, they say, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails 
and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas just could not believe that this had happened. Eight days later, the disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. This is the thing that fascinates me. This is the thing that humbles me. This is the thing that inspires me. With Jesus' own resurrected and perfected body, a body that could no longer die, the body that he would take with him to heaven, this body still had the scars of his sacrifice on it. Do you know why? Because they were not the scars of a victim. They were the scars of a savior. They were not the scars of one who had been defeated. They were the proof of one who has overcome. And that's why I worship him. And that's why I follow him. The Bible says that by his wounds, we are healed. It's by his scars that our stain can be removed. And so I invite you, look upon and see those scars and know that he bears those scars so that your stain could be removed. Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God, because that is who Jesus is. He is Lord and God. And if you do that, if you cry out to God knowing that your sin has stained your heart, if you cry out to God and place your trust in him, that stain will be removed. And now you will have a right relationship with God. You can have eternal life. Welcome to heaven. You get to have a pure religion. And this is because of what Christ has done, not what we have done. And for those of us whose stains have been removed, our call is not just to see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. That is a wonderful thing to do. But our call is to be Christ-like in a corrupt world, to be unstained from this world. We are called to make God our motive to let his wisdom rule our life, to let his spirit strengthen our faith. And through him, seeking the guidance of God, through his word, through the Holy Spirit, that we might live out this pure religion. The world is stained, but thanks be to God that we have a Savior who is scarred. Amen. Would you please stand and pray with me? Let's pray. Father, with our pure religion that we have through our risen Savior, who bears the scars of, our sa of being our Savior, we would ask that by the moving of your Spirit that you'd give us a revelation, that we would be a people, your people, a people that you're calling to yourself, that you are making holy. You're removing our spots. You're removing our blemishes. You're removing our stain because our Savior's been scarred, paying our penalty. Lord, you are making us holy. So, Lord, we do cry out, worthy is the Lamb who has been slain. Worthy is our Savior who did this for us. So remove our stains by the blood of Jesus, Lord, and keep us unstained for your glory, for our good. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things, and we lift up praises in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.